0: It's good to be together, good to be together on the Lord's Day. Before we partake of the Lord's Supper together, and that, of course, is for all of you who are in Christ, let's uh, spend some time in the Scriptures together. Would you open with me, if you have a Bible, to Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. We're just going to deal with uh, the text of one verse this morning. Matthew 5, 4, which reads, "'Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted.'" And you can figure out how that fits in with the end of that hymn we just sang about being happy all day long. Years ago, a man lost his dog, and he ran an ad in the local newspaper. And it went like this, "'Lost dog, blind in both eyes, deaf in both ears.'" Crippled in hind legs, covered in mange, answers to the name lucky. <laughs> well, that paradox of being called lucky when you got nothing is like the blessed person of the Beatitudes. This person has everything that nobody wants, like, for example, mourning in verse 4. And here's another paradox most of what is counted for Christianity today is actually human improvement Christianity. God believes in you. God has dreams for you. God wants to fulfill your God-sized dreams. For those of you from an earlier generation, you are a promise with a capital P. It's all about like somehow the reason Christ came was to make you better than you are. Make your life better than it is. And yet, how strange it is that our Lord and His apostles, nearly all of them, died martyrs' deaths. How that all works out, that this could be human improvement, Christianity always escapes me when I think about the reality for why Christ came and how His closest and dearest followers ended up. A couple of years ago, a tornado struck a house in Arkansas. The house had nine children in the family, all of them under age 15. The dad and two of the children died and were killed in the tornado. Mom and dad were believers. And that family is a part of a good church out there, thankfully, filled with people who knows what it means when Jesus says in verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Everybody around the country, certainly the Christian kind of family and the ways that things get communicated, we all feel very, very badly for those who die an untimely death, especially fathers with many children. And I don't know if any of us quite went into the mourning that the church itself went into. And that the text says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. doesn't make the family's loss any the less, <clears throat> but Christ's promise will not fail them. They will be comforted. Last week when we spent our time in the previous verse, I mentioned to you that this opening section here of this sermon is evangelistic. He is reaching out to people in order to gain their following of His teachings, in order to... Gain their following of his teachings so that they go to heaven after death. Great major purpose for evangelism is in order to win souls out of death and into life, out of eternity apart from Christ and to eternity with Christ. So in other words, these words here are evangelistic. They are a message to tell people how to get to heaven. So to our ears... They sound strange. After all, look at verse 4 again. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. That's like putting your trust in a broken, mangy dog named Lucky, it sounds like. The fact of the matter is, how can people be blessed who mourn? Millions lose so much in this world, and clearly they have no comfort. They lose a lot to house fires. They lose a lot to car accidents. They lose children to sudden infant death syndrome. No one lives here very long without sorrow. This is a sorrowful place, this world, in deep contrast to its astonishing beauty and to the joys that life gives. There is no denying the fact, and we have to enter into it together this morning, my friends, that there's a lot of mourning, a lot of sorrow in this world. So many people get depressed because the sorrows multiply upon themselves, and then feeling the sorrows and feeling the mourning, they actually grow into depression, very real, quite prevalent among all of us. We know, folks, if we ourselves aren't the depressed, we probably have people in our family who are, people at work who are, people in our neighborhoods who are. Very, very common. And it's always been this way. And maybe you're young, or maybe you've lived the charmed life, and you haven't sorrowed yet a lot in your life. Nonetheless, you're looking for strategies in your own life so that when that day of sorrow comes, you have some way to handle it so that you don't fall, stumble, live a life of depression. Saving gospel of Jesus Christ best reaches those who are sorrowing, people who are full and happy and rich in life, frankly, feel no need to trade off the life that they are living under their own leadership and following the teachings that have brought them to such apparent fullness? Why would they want to exchange that for the teachings of Christ? Jesus certainly knows how to hit that head on. Look at what he says, Blessed are those who mourn. He isn't obviously speaking to the people who feel themselves happy. Pharrell Williams probably doesn't have this verse tattooed on his arm as he instructs everybody on how to be happy. People don't want to know how to mourn. They want to know how to be happy. People are told how to fulfill their dreams in this life. And if you wish upon a star... Everything's going to turn out okay. But then what happens is the dreams don't come true, and life gets shattered. The person we marry ends up being someone not right, or we end up being the person who's not right. And life falls apart, and the pain is deep, and lives are shattered. I don't really need to belabor this point with you. Who here does not remember that awful December of 2012? And who here does not live with that? And you will, many of you, live with that the rest of your lives. That depth of inconsolable seeming sorrow. A feeling that will maybe never go away in this life. The depravity, shock. Sadness, how you wish you could throw your arms around the parents and the living siblings in order to provide them with a measure of comfort, and yet, nonetheless, even the embrace would have to break off, and what could they have? What could we give them? They so desperately need to be comforted. This world is filled, isn't it, with great sadness? So as we enter into really, frankly, what is a beatitude that is sober, is it not? Then we want to look at it under the same three headings that we used last week, simply the condition, the group, and the promise, the same ones we used last week, and we want to look into the details of this text in order to understand it well, and in order to understand why would the Son of God come down from heaven and tell us that it's blessed to be mournful, tell us that there's a... But this is, what's, this is what's really a, a blessed thing, what goes t- totally contrary, not merely to our happy, clappy American culture and pop culture, but to every culture in the world. So let's start first with the group this time, not like we did last week. We'll start with the group, and it is simply in verse 4, those who mourn. I think you understand that people do not pay to go to funerals. They rather shell out big bucks in order to go to the pro football game, in order to go to the concert, in order to go to the entertainment. People are not lining up looking for a place to go for mourning. They're looking for a place to go that's going to entertain them, make them happy, make them feel good, maybe take their minds off of what's going on. Maybe they go to the bar. Maybe they pay for some heroin or a pill or some Coke in order to take them to a place away from what this text is talking about. Blessed are those who mourn. And yet, in this world, certainly not all mourners are blessed. Many people who enter into sorrows and mourning are filled with bitterness, anger. They want revenge upon the person who caused them their sorrows. Say they could be in mourning because they lost their job, and they're so disgustingly angry inside that really they're just filled with revenge. Well, That certainly wouldn't seem to fit what our Lord is talking about. So what exactly is the mourning, then, that Jesus is speaking of here? Well, let's talk about a few things that it's not, but things that often are regarded as as if it is. Some say that the mourning here is one of the stages of grief. You know that if you lose a spouse, you lose someone close to you, you lose a child, there are stages of mourning of grief that you go through. All of that's perfectly humanly understandable. Certainly the death of a loved one would be one of the greatest, maybe the greatest. The theologian J. Dwight Pentecost died a couple years ago at the age of 99. And shortly before he died, he said that losing his wife ten years earlier after 61 years of marriage, was the hardest thing he ever endured in his life. And then he said this, it was even harder than losing my adult daughter to death. This man knew what mourning was, did he not? And he could even rank and categorize them. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, it's better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting because that is the end of every man and the living takes it to heart. Our culture doesn't do mourning very well at the death of a loved one. I had the privilege to be in the country of Malawi several years ago doing some ministry. The people of Malawi, the average age expectancy for a male is somewhere between 41 and 44 years of age. They only have a handful of doctors in a country of 14 million people. Most people will live their entire lives never seeing a doctor. Poorest country in Africa. So death is very important to these people and how it's handled. Someone dies, there are prescribed protocols to go through. Very different than what we do. For example, if you go to the house of someone who has died, you might knock very gently on the door. Let's say it's the man of the home. The wife will be surrounded by some ladies, maybe very hushed talking going on. As you're welcomed into the house, around the main room of the mud slab walls will be men seated with their backs up against the walls down on the floor. And they're all seated there, no one talking. And you are invited to sit there with them. Many of those men will stay there throughout the day and throughout the night, not saying a single word, Being there to mourn for the wife, for the widow, for the family. In our culture, of course, mourning is something that's done on a two-hour schedule, isn't it? We have different cultures. When a man goes to look at a church in that country, what he says to the pastor is not, what kind of programs do you have for my children? He says, who will come to my funeral when I die? Kid you not, that's exactly what they say. Because they they realize that life is so short and that mourning is so real, it's so tangible part of their culture, that they, they are so in touch with it. It for them a text like verse four resonates in a new and fresh way that it may not for you this morning. Having kind of been in such an entertainment rich culture. But even with that kind of mourning, that's not what Matthew 5 4 is talking about, because certainly everybody on earth has the death of loved ones, and not everyone is blessed. Yet Jesus says these mourners are blessed. Most people, frankly, experience no real blessing in the death of a loved one. And if they say they do, or somebody comes along and maybe even mentions to them, well, how blessed are you? Or it's a blessing. They may, they may, out of sweetness and kindness, thank you for your words, but you just stuck a dagger in their heart, did you not? Well, it was a blessing. Well, thanks a lot. Others have said here that the kind of mourning that Jesus is speaking about is a constant grief over a fallen world. It's a morally corrupt world. We've got a corrupt government. That's certainly big on the TV screen these days. Sin is everywhere. How can you not mourn at the condition of the world? There's abortion on demand, divorce on demand. You know what that does to people's lives if you've lived a while. Schools are aggressively enforcing and advocating homosexuality. And if that isn't enough, then there's worldwide diseases, there's viruses, there's ecological meltdowns, there's the ever-present reality of nuclear bombs that can go off. And if that isn't enough, then there's the condition of the churches. And here's where where Christians can fall into it. There's heresy everywhere. There's schism everywhere. There's false teaching everywhere. And yet none of all of that is what Jesus is talking about here, where blessed are those who mourn. That can often be just a selfish perspective of mourning. I mourn because it makes me feel like I have some kind of control over this world. I have some kind of moral vision over this world. And so if I mourn over it, it shows that I'm kind of on a religious mindset. I have an insight into things, when in reality, it's just me being a pessimistic patty. No, the mourning that Jesus is speaking of here. In order to understand it, you need to read the previous verse. Jesus says there in verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit. And we see instantly the parallelism between verse 3 and 4. They start with the very same word, blessed. So we know that in Jesus' mind, there is a parallelism to the teaching here by which verse 4 is intentionally meant to reference back to verse 3. They are not disconnected. They are clearly connected. And therefore, when Jesus says those who mourn, he is connecting that to the phrase in the prior verse, the poor in spirit. The group in the prior verse are those who are poor in spirit. You may remember last week we talked about being poor in spirit as being beggarly poor, having no self-righteousness, no self-goodness, nothing to recommend you to God or man. To be poor in spirit is to be beggarly poor, and your only hope for mercy and goodness in this life is that you might hold out your tin beggar's cup and the king might come by and drop a single coin into it, allowing you to have some food for the rest of the day that you might purchase the idea about being poor in spirit, you're beggarly poor, you have nothing, and Jesus says, blessed are the beggarly poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, paralleling on that in verse 4, blessed are those who mourn. In other words, you mourn over being poor in spirit, produces mourning. So essentially then what Jesus is saying here is that you mourn over your sin. I'd like you to hold your finger here, and if you would, flip with me back to Psalm 38. <clears throat> Psalm 38. This then is a mourning, a sadness, a sorrowing over personal sin. It directly relates to Psalm 38, the Psalm of David who was a great sinner, and wrote, O Lord, rebuke me not in your wrath, and chasten me not in your burning anger, for your arrows have sunk deep into me, and your hand has pressed down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation." There is no health in my bones because of my sin. This is talking about a depressed person. For my iniquities are gone over my head. But it's a depressed person because he's so realizing of his sin. My iniquities are gone over my head. I can't even control them. As a heavy burden, they weigh too much for me. My wounds grow foul and fester. Now using his body as a spiritual type. My spiritual wounds grow foul and fester. They stink, they smell. Because of my folly, he writes. Verse 6, I am bent over and greatly bowed down. Here it is. I go mourning all day long. For my loins are filled with burning. There's no soundness in my flesh. I am benumbed and badly crushed. I groan because of the agitation in my heart. We could go on and continue to take into account. I recommend this to you later on. But for now, why don't you go back with me to Matthew 5. Tremendous psalm to read when you are in mourning and you find out that you're not alone. Jesus says here, blessed are those who mourn. Now we understand the kind of mourning. Mourning, then, is an inward sorrow over your actual spiritual condition. And let me make this a little bit more pointed for you. In verse 4, I'd like you to notice that he specifically says, those who mourn. That is a present tense participle for those of you who actually like the English language. <laughs> And it's describing a people who are always in the activity of mourning. I mean, these are awful people to have at a drinking party. They are such bores. They get around some kind of joyous cultural event, and they wear this sad and somber look on their face. What is wrong with them? Well, they are mourning. <clears throat> One day this cold will go away, I trust. Please forgive me. Again, out of the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon says, The mind of the wise is in the house of mourning, while, mind, while the mind of fools is in the house of pleasure. And I just remind you, this is evangelism Jesus-style. Blessed are those who mourn over their personal sin. This is a pretty far cry from God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Really? God loves me? Well, so do I. That makes two of us. It's pretty great. I mean, it kind of confirms what I thought about myself all along. How could he not love me? It's just the opposite, isn't it? To be a mourner is to be of a perspective, how could a holy God ever love me? How could a holy God, who knows my sin and if sin offends him, ever love me? I read another pastor who didn't like the way this verse read. Pastor Robert Schuler said... This He changed the words here. He said, blessed... This is how he translated verse 4. Blessed are those whose dreams are shaped by their hopes, not by their hurts. Well, thank you, Bobby. I don't see a whole lot of teaching on dreams in Jesus' teaching. Do you? I don't even know anywhere. I was trying to think of it. I don't even know anywhere in Jesus' teaching where he teach on having dreams. Isn't that funny? And then another pastor I read... Change the verse to read this. Blessed are those who turn lemonade into lemons. Really? I mean so what if what if you aren't strong enough to take the deep sorrows of your life and to take those lemons and turn them into lemonade? Then then if this word becomes a curse upon your soul, a pox upon your life. Because now all of a sudden now you're not good enough to take the lemons in life and turn them into lemonade. So now what? Well, you just go mourning at a deeper level and you become depressed. That's actually words of cruelty to people who suffer and are in mourning. This isn't about turning lemonade into lemons. There are elements of life that are negative that you do, and I do need to turn, take lemons and turn them into lemonade. But one thing is not my sin, and certainly for you, not your sin, to somehow figure out how you can turn those lemons into lemonade. The Jewish religion, they, they would have heard these words. People who were religionists back in that day, And they would have made a big deal of mourning. Oh, yeah, mourning. Got that. Got a whole category of theology for it. I could tell you all about it. It was a very external thing. There were certain clothes you wore. There were certain looks you had on your face. You went about wailing maybe, and you certainly showed yourself in public. And everybody could look at you if you were wearing those kind of clothes and doing those kind of things. No, this is talking about a, a, a private, hidden mourning between you and God over your sin. I say this to some of you, too, who think that there's a, there's a secret virtue to repentance if you tell everybody your sins, that somehow you'll have new strength in which to repent from your sins. But it won't work. This is a hidden, private relationship between you and the Lord over your sin. And and so maybe we can even look at this and say, well, okay, if we take this verse to be true, we can expect that if we come to Newtown Bible Church on Sunday morning, there's going to be some people who look sad. And how foolish of us if we use that against them and in our own hearts say, boy, I just don't really like going to Newtown Bible Church because there's people there who just look sad. Jesus says they're blessed. You're looking at them maybe and saying, gee, I don't want to be with them. Well, maybe you should. Maybe you should. So this is the group, the mourners is a deep, searching, painful morning because I'm poor in spirit, because I am a beggar when it comes to self-righteousness, when it comes to goodness, when it comes to all those things. Let's move on together to the condition, and this we saw last time as well. The condition is simply the very first word of verse 4, blessed. And we need to make a distinction because that word can mean so many things to people, We might even say something like, well, bless her heart. She sure meant well. Well, that's not the idea. It's not Jesus saying a general idea of a sentiment. Like, well, what a blessing. What a blessing, honey. They especially use the word blessing down in the South as a polite way of speaking. It's even perfectly acceptable to say something mean about somebody. As long as you follow it up with the word bless, it kind of sanctifies the whole statement. For example, you could say, well, that boy is dumber than a bag of hammers, bless his heart. And then it makes it okay because you said bless his heart. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. Remember last week we talked about the word blessed. It's God's assessment of a certain kind of person. Blessed means spiritually happy. Blessed means spiritually content. Probably the best one is this. Blessed means spiritually successful. Spiritually Successful. Blessed, though, the word is highly evangelistic because it speaks to the aspiration that's deep within all of our hearts, placed there by God. All of us want a blessed life. But the blessing here is the kind of blessing that comes no matter what. Sickness comes, your job lays you off, cancer comes, you're in an auto accident, and you're paralyzed. Or there's all kinds of loss that you experience in life. Oh, it's so painful. I know. I do know. But this is, this is the, the desire of your heart. You so thoroughly, firmly, 100% want your life to be blessed. And Jesus here is challenging whatever your own individual view of what a blessed life is and, and appealing to you to replace it with his. His. Oh, please replace it, my beloved friends. Please replace your idea of what the blessed life should have been for you, could have been for you, or will be for you with His eternally significant and brilliant beatitudes. We yearn to be blessed inwardly with a life that is peaceful and rich in meaning and sweet and purposeful. We learn. We yearn to be blessed outwardly all the affairs of our life, our family, our children, our grandchildren, our friends, our finances, our work, our neighborhood. We want it all to be blessed. And God alone has the power to make that happen. And here it is, this great initial paradox that hopefully is getting you to pause a little bit here. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. The mourners are the happy ones. It's so opposite of the world system that is conforming you this past week and will conform you this week that blessed are the rich Blessed are the wealthy. Blessed are the powerful. Blessed are those with physical beauty. Constantly telling you these things. And your heart, like mine, always being tempted to exchange the blessed life that our Lord talks about and claims is blessed for the one That our world says is so blessed. I was thinking about it this morning. Been alive a little bit now, so I can remember politicians back from earlier decades who at the time were so critically important. Whatever they said made the news, and it was big news. And then they die. You realize they're no more. They're gone. People of this world who seem to be the ones that are rich, powerful, important, die. Remember the story this past summer? A rich baseball player, millionaire, many times over, riding in a boat, doing drugs off of Miami. He got the boat on all the pilot or something crazy, crashed right into rocks, and he's dead. I think he was 24 years old. He wasn't blessed, but the world would tell you that he's blessed. No, blessed are those who are always mourning over their sin. This reality here of a present participle, well, you have to wonder to yourself, well, how, how well can mourners be blessed then? Which brings us now to the final segment of our message this morning, the promise that at the end of verse 4, for they shall be comforted. And what excites me the most about these last few words are the verb shall be. You see that? Now, back in the previous verse... The verb was is. We talked about that. People who are poor in spirit presently, in the present tense, present time, right now, possess the kingdom of heaven. Notice, though, in verse 4, it's all future tense. Those who mourn, it doesn't say they are being comforted. It says they shall be comforted. This excites me. The very fact that the tense is here means that you will be comforted as a mourner over your personal sin tomorrow and the next day, and next week, and next month, and next year, and forever. There will never be a time when the mourners are not comforted, which makes this a stellar promise, one that you can thoroughly put all your trust in. The mourners, those who mourn over their sin, will never, ever have a time in the future that they are not being comforted. Moreover, according to Jesus, God doesn't just recommend that you mourn over your sin. In other words, if the the Beatitude had simply ended, blessed are those who mourn, well, let's go to the next one, blessed are the gentle, we would have been left with a great paradox but no resolution for it. Hmm. But now, with these great words at the end of verse 4, we now have a resolution to this right here. They forever and always will be, on earth and in eternity, be comforted. Wonderful. It tells you this, that God is more invested in comforting you than He is in getting you to mourn over your sin. For some of you, this is an important revelation right here. This could be your aha moment of this Sunday right now. Where, for some of you, thinking, well, what God is really after? is to get me to be crushed and numbed and and pressed down over the recognition of my personal sin. But actually, while God desires, certainly, that you are fully cognizant of your spiritual poverty, He's more interested in your comfort from it. He is a good God. I say this to some of you because... It's very easy for us to focus in on our own sin because we feel it and we're not feeling the comfort. So for many of us for whom to feel something means it's true, to feel something means that's what's real, that's what's the genuine, we need to have the words of faith come shining like a like a, like a light right through that fog. And say, no, no, it isn't mourning in and of itself that's blessed, but you're blessed because in your mourning over your spiritual poverty, God's going to comfort you. He's going to comfort you. The blessed person recognizes God's own work in their life of producing mourning And so responds to the Lord then with no more deceit before you, O God. No more covering. No more compromise. No more lies before you. The blessed are not those who spend their lives running from accountability for their personal sin. Actually, just the opposite. To be poor in spirit is not to see your own sin and then run the other way, try to cover it up, try to hide it, not deal with it. To be a mourner is someone who's open before God, who agrees with his testimony in verse 3 that I am poor in spirit. There is therefore now no more need in Christ Jesus for me to hide my sin, for me to compromise, to cover it. It is to open it before my God and have such a genuine relationship with him through the blood of Jesus Christ, that everything that I am inside is open before him and there is no hiding. Therefore, the mourners are those who mourn over the bitter fruits of their sin. They feel it to its bitter depths, but they are comforted to a greater depth by God. And like we saw last week, do you see the word they in verse 4? They shall be comforted. That word is placed emphatically in the original language, so that this verse, and when Jesus spoke it, this is what the people heard, they and they alone shall be comforted. So the people then are blessed for mourning over their sin, and they and they alone shall be the ones who are comforted. And this takes this verse now out of the realm of kind of generalities and banalities And puts it to a place of absolute firm decretal promise from an almighty God who holds your universe together with a promise to you of blessing for having a relationship with him of spiritual integrity. And above all, it tells us that the comfort in this verse is the comfort of the eternal heaven. After all, that's the parallel with verse 3. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven back in verse 3. They shall be, future tense, comforted. So the main comfort promised to you is heaven. Heaven. Now the word comfort here means to come alongside, to kind of have uh, someone who will speak condolences to you, to, to cry with you, to hold you. And so preeminently then Jesus is speaking of the comforter, the Holy Spirit, The mourner possesses the comforter, was one way we could put it, now that we are in the new covenant. By the virtue of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have the promised comforter. You have the Holy Spirit to dwell inside you, the comforter. So this then becomes, at the end of verse 4, a promise of nothing less than God himself is given to the one who is depressed over his or her personal sin. The Holy Spirit then does not mock you for your sin. He does not willingly crush you down for your sin, but He actually ministers to you in order to draw you out of your lust for your sin. Back in ancient Israel, they they had professional comforters. They were paid to come and make you open up, to get you to cry when something tragic happened. Among the Gentiles, they had professional comforters as well. They had that first function, that is to come and get you to cry, but then they had this funny second function. Then they would exhort you on the proper attitudes that you were supposed to have. I don't know if I'd like that personally. I don't think I'd like somebody coming to me and telling me how I ought to act or how I ought to behave when I'm in a time of sorrowing. But that's kind of the idea. The Holy Holy Spirit, who is the comforter, that word for comfort is also translated exhort. And that's the idea. The Holy Spirit not only comforts you, He also exhorts you. Of course, he does it in a way that only God can do it so that he's, he's certainly not coming from a place of, of where he's got you under his thumb and now he's going to crush you. It's, it's more of working within your spirit, within your heart, within your sorrow to exhort you on, on, on what's right to do and, and those kind of things. The Holy Spirit comes and comforts mourners, and he does that specifically by pointing you to Christ. You might remember Jesus promised that the Comforter would come and make Jesus known, The idea is this, that as miserable as your sin is, the Holy Spirit is going to make Christ as doubly comforting than your sin. You're going to go down in in a measure of mourning and sadness over personal sin, but doubly, triply, quadruply, however much you are depressed and mourning over your sin, the Holy Spirit will make Christ more precious and more comforting to you than your own sin. This is critical. There are, there are people who, who refuse to come to Christ because they're in depth of mourning over their sin. Did you know that? They stay at the place of personal mourning for sin thinking that that's kind of what it is to be a Christian or this is how I know I'm in touch with gospel truth because I feel so bad about sin. But they never, they never actually reach out in faith and look at Christ and accept He whom God sent to deal with your sin. And so it's very selfish. It's very self-oriented. It's very self-focused. And this is different. This is the promise of comfort that obviously comes through the Holy Spirit who makes Christ beautiful to us, who shows us the glory of Jesus Christ, who is tender to sinners, who died on the cross and said, it is finished. You feel terrible you feel awful for your sins but the Holy Spirit presents Jesus to you for your faith. He doesn't present you with a feeling of Jesus, he presents you with you putting your faith in Jesus the same way you came to him by faith and now you're confronted with a choice. Will you choose your feelings or will you choose faith? Do what you did when you came to Christ. Don't rely on your feelings of being such a wicked sinner that therefore that's the that's the kind of the dirt you need to grovel in spiritually, and somehow that earns merit before God. No, what honors God is that you're fully aware of their spiritual bankrupt state, but that you, by faith, look at Jesus Christ and see Him the way God sees Him and the way He's been presented to you in Scripture. You remember the time He takes the woman caught in adultery? What does He do with her? He's so merciful to her that He sends all the guys away by an act of amazing power, and then what? Holds her hand, stands her up and says, go and sin no more. Both comfort and exhortation. He does the same with everyone who trusts in him, who puts faith in him and doesn't wallow and stay wallowing in their misery and sin. You simply exert your faith. You don't come to him saying, I feel so bad for my sin. Now I have merit before you. Now I can come before you because I feel so bad for my sin. No, that doesn't actually earn you entrance with God to feel a certain level of sorrow over your sin. There's only one who gives you entrance to God, Jesus Christ, the God-man, he who made a ransom, he who died on a cross. So not you, but him. Christ's comfort reaches deeper than mourning. Christ's comfort lasts longer than your mourning. Psalm 30, verse 5, says his anger is but for a moment, his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. Psalm 126, verse 5, those who sow in tears shall reap with joyful shouting. And this all ties in then to one last important observation of the text. If you look at verse 4, does does anybody's Bible here read, "...for they shall comfort themselves?" Not a one. For as long as there is a future, if you're a mourner, this text never says you'll be blessed if you're busy comforting yourself. This means Jesus is not teaching that you are to comfort yourself when you are mourning over your sin. This is, again, where a lot of Christians get stuck. They wallow in their sorrows. There is only one who can comfort you. Notice that this is a passive verb shall be comforted. This is God comforting you. The only one who can actually comfort you spiritually as a poor in spirit person is God. If you believe you can comfort yourself in your sin, then you're not, verse 3, poor in spirit. You haven't realized that you're a beggar and you have no power to bring comfort to yourself out of your deplorable spiritual condition. You need God to do it. Well, the man or the woman of faith begins to laugh now. <laughs> Are you kidding? God can do it. And all this time, I thought, I had to do it. I had to figure out how to make myself happy or how to feel bad enough about my sins so that I felt some relief. But I'm not responsible to get myself out of mourning. God is. And the person of faith, like Sarah, at the news that she shall have a child, laughs, laughs. God's wonderful comfort begins in the here and now and never ends, not even in eternity. Well, let me wrap up our time together this way One of the main reasons people sin is to experience false comfort. Sin is emotional and spiritual refuge from the presence of God. Even believers, when the pressure of holiness and righteousness is too much for us, we go off and we sin. It discourages me to see Christians run and hide from sin. I see it here in Newtown Bible Church, and I see it in my former church. It means people aren't trusting Christ, and they're getting a false comfort for their sins. And I've seen this just as much in church leaders as I have in the rank and file. You know what the greatest false comfort is? False religion. It is a false promise of forgiveness, either granted by yourself to yourself or from men to you that has no connection to something like this in verse 4, where you mourn in, in full, open recognition before the Almighty for your sinful condition. You, you, you come up short. You get your feeling of forgiveness from yourself. You, you tell yourself you're forgiven because you said some words to God, but there's no repentance before men when the case needs it, or there's no repentance before God when the case needs that. No, this isn't a, 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 a feeling that comes to you by self-absolution or even going to someone else like a priest or a pastor or a friend, a Christian friend on the telephone who tells you that what you did was fine and good. This is a, a genuine depth of comfort that comes from dealing with genuine sin. And God himself pronounces upon you the hush, the soul-sanctifying, soul-quieting, mind-satisfying hush of peace. My child, your sins are forgiven. It comes because the sin and however many tentacles there are to it, however many layers there are to it, whatever the cost may be, I will do all the deeds of repentance necessary for it. The truth is, of course, that when we only grant ourselves absolution for our sins, every day the sin comes back to torture us once again. And we're not, if we're not poor in spirit, we simply go on and living some kind of existence in the Christian life. Now, you're about to partake of the Lord's Supper. I've said some pretty tough things this morning, haven't I? I've tried to talk to your heart. I hope you realize that all of that is only out of my concern for your very best spiritual interest. I want you, however, to take of the Lord's Supper this morning not based on your spiritual virtue. In other words, not saying I'm good enough, I've I've mourned enough or, or... I'm good enough. And I don't want you not to take of it because you're saying, well, I'm just too sinful. I'm just too sinful to take of the Lord's Supper. No, I, I, I want you to partake of the Lord's Supper out of faith. Not looking at yourself, but at Him. at Jesus Christ sent by the Father, full of mercy and love to the cross. And then do that as an act of of faith in Him. And do it with your brothers and sisters who all struggle just as you do as well. Okay? Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, then, we want to come before you clean and true, genuine, actually dealing with our God and ourselves without... Excuse, without barriers, without compromise, without all the justifications that arise in our heart, because we want Christ, because we want integrity, because we want wholeness, because we want what our Lord spoke of here, blessedness. And so I pray that you, by your tender mercies, O Holy Spirit, work in our hearts be fully open before thee. I ask your mercy as we partake of the Lord's table. In your son's glorious name, amen.